Hello and welcome back to The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. On this week's podcast, the never-ending Tory. As the Brexit talkers agree to keep on talking, is deal versus no deal really down to whatever is in Boris Johnson's head at the very last minute? Plus, we've got a very special guest on today's show, former Conservative MP, diplomat, author and wanderer of the Hindu Kush, Rory Stewart, gives us his take on global Britain and life after Parliament. Who's buying all the vaccines? Are richer nations stifling efforts to tackle COVID-19 worldwide by buying up mass quantities of the COVID inoculations? And is it finally high noon for public service broadcasting? What do we think of Ofcom's proposals to change streaming TV? All that and more on today's bunker. Welcome back to the weekly panel edition of The Bunker. A quick reminder before we start, our Christmas live Zoom is on this Thursday, the 17th at 8pm. It's exclusive to Patreon backers of both The Bunker and Oh God, What Now? Invites are out with you now, backers, and the panel is Aisha Hazarika, Ross Taylor, Nomi Smith, Dorian Linsky and Ian Dunt. If you're not a backer and you fancy joining in, search Patreon Bunker Podcast to sign up and see the panel full of Christmas cheer, brackets to be confirmed, close brackets. Now let's meet the panel. First up, hello to erstwhile Labour Spin Doctor and Times Radio host Aisha Hazarika. Hello, Aisha. Hello. So you had both Nile Rogers of Chic and podcast favourite Nigel Farage on your Times Radio show this weekend. Which one made you freak out? <laughs> well, one was certainly a freak, um, but uh, <laughs> no, no, come on. Um, it was, yeah, it was slightly bizarre. I thought my show was definitely eclectic um, this week. And you, anyone who listened to it, we, I did not get into Brexit with Nile Rogers, thank God. Yes. These are the bad times. Was there any uh, penitence from Nigel? Did you get the sense that perhaps this isn't quite the Brexit he ordered? Well, there was a bit, actually. So, I mean, I deliberately tried to just not like, have a, you know, just go complete full Glaswegian angry on him because and that was quite hard. And so I decided to sort of try and take the heat out of it. And I did get him to eventually concede that there will be winners and there will be losers out of this. And um, he did kind of concede that in the short term, things are going to be a bit tricky. And then I had Richard Tyson on Saturday, who's um, chair of the Brexit party. And he eventually conceded after all the sunny uplands, actually it was going to be really hard for farmers and said that the government should be subsidising farmers for all the the costs. So they didn't have that on a bus, I don't remember. Ah, baby steps. Also with us, we have uh, former diplomat and foreign office man about the world, Arthur Snell. Hello, Arthur. Hi. Were you impressed by the display of British sea power in the channel at the weekend? Gunboat to protect fish. I think that it's actually a submarine that you would need to protect fish if you're going to go about, about it that way. Well, of course, I, you know, I was filled with a sense of sort of um, Nelsonian uh, pride that, that we're, we're deploying our Navy to protect tiny little fish and, you know, maybe they're very British. Mm. Uh, I saw that you were enjoying the Mail's tips on how to make the best of no deal. Will you be A, avoiding foreign alcohol, B, moving to an old Japanese diet, C, buying a new 1600-watt Hoover to snub the Brussels bureaucrats, or D, buying a second home? All these things were advised as routes that we could take. Yes, well, uh, I'm definitely not going to avoid foreign alcohol because that's the only thing that keeps me going these days. Um <laughs> And I, I'm not very interested in Hoover's. Second home would be lovely, but I, I don't think I've got the budget. But I do like Japanese food, so perhaps that will be my little contribution. There you go, Sonny Uplands. As today's special guest, we're thrilled to have a former contender for leader of the Conservative Party. Yes, it could have been him photographed shouting at a speakerphone. Rory Stewart is former Secretary of State for International Development and a former Conservative MP. He left the party and stood down at the 2019 election. Before that, he served as a diplomat at the Foreign Service and wrote a best-selling book, The Places in Between, which documented 
a two-year walk he undertook across Afghanistan and much of South Asia. His current job involves teaching politics and international relations at Yale University, but now he's here in the bunker teaching politics and international relations. Welcome, Rory. How are you? Very well. Thank you very much indeed. It's delighted to have you here. Whereabouts are you, by the way? Which which is your own personal bunker at the moment? So my, my personal bunker is in New Haven, Connecticut. I, I teach at Yale University, so ah. I'm just 20 minutes down the road. Beautiful. Um, a year has been an awfully long time in politics, this year in particular. If you had won that leadership contest, where would where would we be now, do you think? Because I think it, it would probably be quite different. Well, what I was trying to do uh, was push for a soft Brexit. So I believe that because the vote was very close in the referendum, we needed a compromise. So uh, leave the European Union, but remain as close as you possibly could, economically, diplomatically, politically, the European Union. So I was trying to push for something that would now be called a customs union compromise. And I was hoping that if I won the Conservative leadership election, became prime minister, I could use the mandate of winning to bring people together, and in particular to reach out to Labour. I think in the end, the real failure of Theresa May's attempt to get a compromise came when she finally realised that she couldn't get the vote through because there were too many Conservatives in the far Brexit camp who wouldn't vote for her. She therefore reached out to Jeremy Corbyn, but never managed to strike that deal. And it's a real reminder how important relationships are in politics. Do you think you could have held the party together in 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 the way that it singularly fell apart before uh, the, the the general election? Was it was it possible to you talk about reaching out across the aisle to Labour? Was it possible to reach within the Conservative Party and and uh, keep them operating as a single unit? Do you think? I think probably much more difficult than I probably admitted at the time. I hoped that if I'd won the leadership contest and the members had voted for me people would have taken a clear message and that I could then get Brexit through on a customs union basis, a soft Brexit through as quickly as possible. And then we could move on. But probably looking now at what's going on, I was underestimating the extent to which probably the hard Brexiteers would have got very, very angry. Probably they would have split off. Um, And I would have found myself with a minority government trying to avoid holding an election, which Nigel Farage would have run very hard against me. So I'm not saying that what I was trying to do probably uh, would have been that easy. We're going to be talking about the Brexit negotiations in detail in a minute. But I mean, firstly, I mean, you've worked with Boris Johnson. You've, you've kind of worked in, with him as a minister. What's going through his head at the moment? I mean, you recently described him as the most accomplished liar in, in public life. I think that he is somebody who really brings into focus this question of how much character does or doesn't matter in politics. And it's a very difficult question. I mean, obviously, there are people who think that, many people, I think, who think either that all politicians are bad people anyway, so it doesn't matter much having this kind of conversation, all politicians are liars, so who cares how much people lie? Or maybe people who think, as maybe many people who voted for Donald Trump thought, yeah, okay, he's a liar, but he's going to do what I want. Uh, And I'm trying to argue that that's not quite good enough, that our, our culture, our country needs an idea of politicians, which includes some sense of what their moral values are, what their character is. And one of those things is that they need to be honest about important issues. They need to take responsibility. What was he like to work with at the Foreign Office? Because the kind of the tiny window that many of us got was through that TV documentary where we watched him aggressively not reading his briefs and aggressively not paying not, aggressively not paying attention to detail. 
Well, I found, I found it extraordinary and infuriating. One of the reasons I ran for the leadership against him is I couldn't imagine him being prime minister. And that was because he was completely allergic to getting involved in the detail of things. And that is very unlike, for example, Winston Churchill. He wrote a book about Winston Churchill, so people often compare him or his supporters often compare him to Winston Churchill. But the point about Churchill is Churchill desperately cared about detail. You know, he read his briefs very, very carefully. He was endlessly firing off questions, detailed memos. He was getting involved in things like how to lay the bricks and mortar in an air raid shelter, things that you would have thought were, you know, well below the level of prime minister. But it's because he understood that he was in charge. He was deeply interested. He wanted to take responsibility. Boris, on the other hand, in the Foreign Office, you couldn't get him to engage, even on things that I thought he cared about. So, you know, he does at some level care about cultural heritage, he cares about animal conservation, or so he says. But when I try to get him to really focus on, will you sign off on this program? Could we put some money into it? He would never, ever follow through. After weeks of Groundhog Day repeats, Sunday's Brexit deal deadline was inevitably extended yet again, with both sides pledging to, quote, go the extra mile, close quotes. There's just over two weeks left till December the 31st. And while there were reportedly some breakthroughs yesterday, particularly on the level playing field, both sides have been downplaying the extent to which there's been major movement. And it comes amid a re- increasingly rancorous coverage from the Brexit press, who claim that Angela Merkel wants us to crawl over broken glass just because she wouldn't take Boris Johnson's calls. Arthur, what are the reported breakthroughs at the moment? We're hearing that the gloom is lifting a little bit. The, you know, the level playing field, Johnson may be about to fold. We will stay linked to EU standards on workers' rights, environmental protection and things. Yeah, so it's, I mean, I think one of the things is perhaps to get away from this this sort of framing of people folding and winning. Uh, that You know, there is a bit of give and take on both sides. My understanding is that it hinges on the idea of automaticity, which is one of those words you only ever get in diplomatic negotiations. So what that means in practice is that if in future Britain seeks to diverge from EU uh, you know, regulations, uh, they may not automatically put tariffs on our goods, but there'll be some sort of sorting process by which you know there, there's an there's a there's a intermediary negotiation whereas originally it was argued that that should happen automatically so that's the eu's bit of concession our concession is that then we sign up to to stay to the eu standards with that sort of arrangement in place but you know this is all happening behind closed doors it may be that something entirely different is going on but that's the big one isn't it i mean conceding on the level playing field is almost the it's almost the reason for brexit well, I, I mean, you know, what is the reason for Brexit? If we go back <laughs> to what Rory was talking about earlier, you know, that it was a close vote. And actually, I don't personally think that all that many people are that bothered about fish and the level playing field. But I think what's happened is that a fairly narrow band of those that control the Conservative Party at the moment are bothered about that. So, I mean, you know, I think it all comes down to the framing. If we think back to last year with the withdrawal agreement, uh, it was possible for for the prime minister to frame his massive concession over the Irish border uh, as a breakthrough and and as a, as a victory. And and if he's able to frame this as a victory this time round, I think he'll be fine. Is that why he's been projecting gloom then for for kind of public consumption, so that it, it can then be framed as victory from jaws of defeat, etc. I mean, Cassie Adler says the EU don't care about PR at all, but it's pretty much all that Boris Johnson cares about. Yes, I mean, I think that's that's reasonable. And I think, I mean, there are two good reasons to project gloom. One is that if we do have no deal, that's pretty bloody gloomy. 
And secondly, that as you rightly observe, if if there is a deal, then what, we can have a, a sort of spate of rejoicing in contrast to the, the gloom that was alternatively on the table. What are you putting your 10 euros on then, Arthur? What do you think is going to happen? I, I think there'll be a deal. I think, you know, and, and there will be an outpouring of, of misplaced joy, particularly from the supportive media. And then I think as this deal takes shape in the early part of next year, people will start to realise just how much worse off we are. And of course, there'll be lots of rancour and, and, and sort of... Uh, complaining but at that point it'll be too late Aisha what's, what's your take on on the way things are at the minute I mean, should we really be describing ourselves as hopeful for a deal that this time last year we would have thought was the hardest Brexit going I know it's amazing how things can can change isn't it we're like yes this is going to be great it's like no it's not but I do agree with Arthur and actually on um Sunday on Times Radio, there were two really interesting interviews. One was with Dominic Rabb, who definitely signalled that quite casually that the you know Britain was now prepared to sign up to the level playing field, was prepared to pay tariffs if there were di- if there was divergence away from the rules, but they would be happy to accept an independent adjudicator rather than the EU doing it. So. That is quite a big concession on the part of um, the UK. Now, it was then put to Bernard Jenkin, who was there representing the ERG, if they could live with this independent adjudicator or would this be a betrayal of sovereignty? And what was fascinating is that Bernard Jenkin said, yes, we think we could live with this as the ERG. We could definitely live with this. So I think that is the area in which a deal is going to be struck. I then put that to Nigel Farage, who screamed, this is not Brexit. This is an, aha- this is an absolute never says betrayal. That. never says that. so out of character. <laughs> so I think that is the space in which they've got to manoeuvre. And I think if that is the, the deal that they, re- that they reach, and, and, and you guys are right, so much of this is not about the nitty gritty of the detail. It's all about the spin and the optics and the presentation. So if Boris Johnson gets this deal with all this kind of slightly fabricated high drama, I, thought, I think some of it is genuinely frustration and you know drama but if he gets this deal which looks like he's pulled off the impossible um the erg back it and nigel farage is against it i think he will feel that he's in a good place it's an awfully long and roundabout way to shut up nigel farage isn't it the entire process just began as a way of shutting up nigel farage We've gone round the Everything houses. Everything is about shutting up Nigel Farage, basically. <laughs> so, so concurrent with this, we've had the rebadging of No Deal as not Armageddon. I think Ian Duncan Smith yes. said, oh, oh, wonderful for this country, as John- Johnson claimed, which, I mean, the Spets hedging and, 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 and so forth. Do you think that they have successfully persuaded enough of the country that they could live with No Deal? I don't know about that. I do think people are, I think a lot of people are really, really anxious about um, No Deal. And I think that... It, even though Boris Johnson was very much, oh, we're happy to sort of walk away. I do think his his sort of survival strategy does depend on 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 getting um, a deal. But just the whole the way it's so precarious again has just fed into, as you see, like the kind of boiling frog position we all find ourselves, which we are prepared to accept lower and lower standards, ironically, on what on what Brexit is. Rory, you left the Conservative Party largely over this issue, and particularly No Deal, and many similar, similarly-minded Conservatives were rejected from the party for, for their position on this. Has that lack of internal opposition, we sort of touched on it earlier, has that led us to where we are now, where it's a choice between uh, an extremely hard Brexit and the No Deal 
apocalypse, as it were. Yes. Uh, when these parties were um, much broader, Labour and Conservative, then you had that situation that existed in Parliament uh, last year, summer of last year, where Parliament basically acted as a chamber for expressing lots of different types of opinions. So you had people who wanted a second referendum, you had people who wanted a single market, you had people who wanted a customs union, you had people who wanted a hard Brexit. And Parliament forced us to bring all those things into the open. There was this whole process which infuriated everybody called indicative votes, where we were trying to find our way towards a consensus. What Boris Johnson did, um, for understandable reasons, by getting rid of people like me, is to simplify that. So he got rid of the people in the party who were awkward voices, then held a general election, won a majority, and he ran that election on getting permission for a no-deal Brexit. So basically anybody who stayed in the Conservative Party as an MP had to stand on a manifesto which said that they would accept a no-deal Brexit. They might have felt personally that they really didn't want it, they would prefer a deal, but they had to accept a no-deal Brexit to be prepared to stand. And that has been the secret, really, of his uh, whole position since then. And that's why this parliament, this government, is much more radical than Theresa May's. One, one of the standouts in the weekend was the extent to which people kind of agreed that, you know, that, that the cabinet fundamentally just don't believe in the no deal thing. They, they, they're saying it because they feel they have to, and they're being wheeled out to do the weekend shows. But it's it's purely for consistency and maintaining power. They'll do it, but it's not because of a particular belief that this is the right thing for the country to do. What does this say about the future credibility of the, the politicians who make up the current Conservative Party, that they will do a thing that fundamentally they know is not just wrong, but bad for the country, and they don't even believe in it themselves? So it's, it's, it's a big problem. I mean, I think there are two things. One is you've just noticed that we've gone from a world in which uh, the Prime Minister Boris and others used to say, we've got to keep no deal on the table in order to get a deal. We have to threaten no deal. But the reason to do it is to get a deal. We're now in a world in which, obviously, um, the threat of no deal is no longer what matters. Whether we get a deal or not over the next few days is purely due to whether or not you want a deal, how much you're prepared to compromise. So that is a problem for these members of the cabinet, because they're having to confront whether they actually want no deal or they don't, whereas before they could pretend they didn't want it, but that they were holding it to get a deal. The second problem, though, is a much bigger problem, which is the question of loyalty and politics. These political parties are basically organized, and it's true of the Labour Party as much as the Conservatives, to follow the leader and do what the leader says. And if you don't follow the leader, you get thrown out of the cabinet or you get thrown out of the party, which is why the public are often frustrated. They often wonder why MPs don't rebel more. They often look at people's voting records and get very sad when they discover that Conservative or Labour MPs almost always vote with a party whip. But that's our system. That's the way the party works. You get promotion in exchange for loyalty. Well, we have seen some kind of rumblings and ructions in the party over the past few weeks, not just over this, but also over lockdown and, uh, you know, those regulations and, and so forth. But, you know, some of your former Conservative colleagues like Tobias Elwood or Damien Green have been very vocal about uh, their worries on no deal. And Roger Gale, the MP for Thanet, no less. He might as well be the MP for Brexitshire Central. Says if Johnson doesn't get a deal, he should resign. So, you know, is discipline really that iron? Is is it is it maybe breaking over Brexit, the thing that was supposed to wed everyone to the same cause? I wouldn't have thought so, because so far, Roger Gale's the only person to have said that. And those other people that you've mentioned, people like Damien Green, was a supporter of Boris Johnson. So he may now say that he's aghast at no deal, but he threw himself 
behind Boris Johnson's campaign, which was an explicit campaign about pushing for a hard Brexit and threatening no deal. And he turned away from supporting people like me who were trying to go for a softer deal. So I think it's very unlikely that you'll see somebody like Damien Green threatening to resign. And that's important because I think if it's just a question of going out and giving interviews to newspapers saying that you are in favor of a deal and the gates no deal, but you're not prepared to do anything about it, then things aren't likely to change. Mm. Um, does it just come down to a personal choice of what Boris Johnson wants at this stage? I mean, we've been through this entire tortuous procedure and fundamentally, is it just down to what he thinks in that room, what he personally wants to do? Well, it, it's down to what he thinks. And of course, an important part of that is he obviously, as a personality, uh, is somebody who gambles. He's not um, He's not afraid of no deal. At some level, he doesn't get why people are worried about no deal. I think that's an emotional thing. But it's also that he made a bet by throwing away the one nation bit of the Conservative Party, so getting rid of most of us who were on the left or the centre of the Conservative Party. He decided to pick up votes by running quite right-wing messages in former Labour seats. So he needs to keep his new MPs on side. He needs to keep those 80 seats. And the only way that he can do that is by continuing to be quite right-wing, because if he starts tacking to the centre, he's going to worry again that Nigel Farage or some other party are going to emerge on his right and he's going to lose everything. So he basically made this bed for himself uh, in his strategy over the summer when he decided what kind of campaign, what kind of party he would Aisha, just to close this off, I mean, after the the gunboat caper at the weekend, Guy Verhofstadt said, we are your allies and partners, not your enemies. How how are we going to be able to reconstruct that idea of allies and partners? How long is it going to take? Or will it not be a priority for this government, do you think? I don't think it will be um, a priority for a, a very long time because the dominant narrative over, let's be honest, like probably about the last 10 years in British politics has been to sort of frame the the EU as as the enemy. We've had a style of politics, which is we define ourselves. So all the problems that we face in this country um, is is down to an enemy. Who is the enemy? Oh, it's those faceless bureaucrats, um, unelected bureaucrats in, in the EU. That has been the, the narrative. So even like some of the you know, even some of the more progressive Brexiteers that I've spoken to, they are most comfortable on a narrative which says the EU have treated us terribly. You know, um, we've been, you know, we've, we're the victim in all of this, even though this was of our making and it is completely our choice. And there still seems to be a fundamental lack of understanding about the asymmetric nature of the size and might of the EU as a trading bloc versus us. So I don't think the government is going to be racing to make it a, a kind of a, a huge priority because it's been two it's been two ideologies coming up against each other. It's been our very purest version of sovereignty versus Again, a very important philosophical idea, the sanctity of the of, of the union, the European um, Union. So I can't see any huge efforts being made to try and repair relations very um, quickly. I don't think Boris Johnson, I think they want to more focus on American relations. I think that's where a lot of the focus will go in the in the short term. And as well, trying to just get as many trade, you know, they're going to try and send a signal out that we are somehow compensating for the lost trade with the EU and the the, the break in that relationship with all these new friendships with, with other countries. I think that's where the political focus will be. 
Arthur, just finally, cast your mind forward to the year 2040 or 2050. How do you think this particular episode, the final, the Brexit end game, will be viewed by future historians? Well, I think there w- there won't be an end game. That'll be the thing. So th- this feels like the, a moment that is an extremely important sort of uh, point in time. And I am very sure that we will still be negotiating with the EU in 2040. I don't mean that these specific negotiations will have carried on, but we are going to be rather like Switzerland in an endless cycle of constant uh, negotiated relationship. Uh, And that will just become a feature of our lives. And it'll be, I hope, will become something very dull that we don't take too much interest in. And therefore, it is not sort of politically controversial in the way that it is now. Let's leave cramped Europe and Little Britain for the foothills of Afghanistan. Rory Stewart spent 21 months working across South Asia, including Afghanistan and Iran, and wrote a best-selling book about it called The Places in Between. He was also a diplomat in Montenegro during the Kosovo crisis, chair and chief executive of the Turquoise Mountain Foundation based in Kabul, and an MP for nine and a half years, during which he spent some time as a cabinet minister with Theresa May. Rory, this has been a remarkable career, and it's still continuing to evolve, but you're actually a member of the Labour Party as a teenager. How did, how did you end up a Tory? Is it a case of eating? and will out in the end (laughs) i became um, a conservative because i got very very angry about the iraq war and i became very focused on what i thought was a very centralizing overly uh, rational view coming out of tony blair and gordon brown's government and i running a charity in afghanistan particularly became very much convinced that politics was about local wisdom it was about working with traditions, working with local cultures, and it was about trusting people. And I felt that the Labour government was too centralised, was too technocratic, too managerial in its approach. Your father was a colonial officer and was once said to be a candidate to lead MI6. What do you think he would make of Britain's situation in, in 2020, where we are effectively piling up all the soft power and goodwill and influence and all that kind of great game stuff that we've, we've built for 200 odd years? Well, building it into a big bonfire and burning it. What would he have made of it? Well, his, his, he was, uh, I mean, he died when he was 92, but he was a pretty gloomy by the end of his life. I mean, he really began to feel that Britain was losing us in a whole series of different ways. And fundamentally, he felt that we'd become a country that had lost a sense of responsibility and action, that we talked a lot, but we didn't do very much. And he probably would have looked at this whole event as being an incredible example of impracticality on on actually probably on every side to be honest that this whole brexit debate it was very difficult to get anyone to focus on the details of what kind of trade agreement we were going to get everything was taking place on this very very uh, idealistic abstract level either people on the Brexit side saying we want no more relationship with the European Union than we have with Thailand or people on the Remain side saying we should just forget the whole thing and have a second referendum, but a real refusal to actually get into the details and get on with it. Rory, you were in the Black Watch and then of course you you were in Montenegro with the Foreign Office after the Kosovo campaign, which some would say was a sort of high point of liberal interventionism. And then of course you also worked in Iraq and and that might be the low point and it's something you've made reference to. What's your take on the reason for the supposed success of the former Yugoslavia versus the failures in Iraq? I think the the answer is that we were much more modest about how we did it, firstly. Secondly, we weren't doing it with an insurgency. People were not firing at our troops and trying to kill them at the time. 
And thirdly, most importantly of all, we allowed local players to take the lead. So really the trick in Bosnia was, yes, there was strikes, there were airstrikes that got rid of the artillery around Sarajevo, but thereafter, American-British troops did not leave their bases very much. They weren't trying to fight a counterinsurgency campaign. The loss of the things that mattered, the refugee return, for example, was driven by a local former Yugoslav organizations. And in Iraq and Afghanistan, by contrast, it really was a very, very top-down muscular attempt with over 100,000 soldiers, over 100,000 foreign consultants to impose a vision of a state on another country. And, and that I, and in the middle of a war. And I think that simply cannot work. Yeah. And of course, you, you were in southern Iraq um, and, you know, it was pretty chaotic. I think at one point your compound in Nasiriyah was, was under sort of full-scale attack. You're very much a sharp end. And, and equally, you, you were very vocal about the situation in Afghanistan. But the, the situation in Libya, the, the experience of Libya and also the later period in Afghanistan suggests that we didn't learn any lessons from Iraq. So why do you think that might be? I think it's that we remain at some level really optimistic about the world. I mean, we, we grew up in an age which convinced itself that we were all naturally moving towards democracy. 1989, perhaps the Soviet Union and things, uh, seemed to confirm the idea that century-run authoritarian states were not good for their people, not good for their economy. And so there was always a hope that somehow the West was going to be able to work with history and that ultimately there was some better alternative for Iraq than Saddam Hussein, better alternative for Libya than Gaddafi. And of course, uh, you know, intuitively, we've got to feel that must be true. The problem is that it turned out that in ways we cannot begin to imagine, we are unbelievably bad at doing that. We really fail. And I think in retrospect, that means that we need to be far more cautious. It's not that I actually got Libya wrong. Right? I thought maybe Libya, if we did it with a light footprint, if we tried to do in Libya what I felt we'd done in Bosnia and Kosovo, it might work better. And of course, it didn't. So it may simply be that these countries are too, uh, too risky, too complex, too uncertain for us. And that is probably the reason why this whole age of liberal intervention has come to an end, why we're not likely in the next 20 years to be doing any more of this stuff. Yeah. And Rory, of course, I, I should declare an interest. Uh, as you know, I also served in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I actually remember sitting in the back of an armoured jeep with you as we drove across Helmand debating these issues. And, and one of the things that I wonder, though, is that if is it possible for Britain to come up with a really kind of intelligent uh, and different approach? When ultimately, if we think about what we were doing in Afghanistan, we were basically there because the Americans were there, NATO was there. So what, what, what can we do differently as Britain? I think Britain needs to focus on projects which are appropriate for a country of our kind of size and scale. And remember, the world's changing very, very quickly. I mean, when you and I were working together there in Iraq and Afghanistan, the British economy was larger than the Chinese economy. Today, the Chinese economy is six or seven times larger than the British economy. It's happened very, very quickly. So I think Britain needs to find what I would call sweet spots. It needs to find uh, small to medium-sized countries which have a good relationship with Britain and where we share a common interest and feel we can make a difference. So, you know, I would be looking at countries like Ghana, for example. I wouldn't be trying to think that we can remodel countries like Nigeria or Pakistan because, frankly, they're just too big. Right? 
you know, even if you spent four hundred million pounds a year in Nigeria, that's zero point one percent of Nigeria's GDP. But it also means understanding that if we're ever going to get involved in big things, we are very, very much going into that in coalition and in partnership, which is also why I'm a little bit skeptical about our attempt to create a sort of grand British Navy. I think it would have been much smarter to think hard about what our allies have and don't have and fit ourselves to that. And probably that would have meant in Britain investing more in a flexible infantry force rather than trying to buy a lot of expensive ships. So we've just heard about the sad passing of John Le Carre, and it made me think about you because lots of people think that you were a spook at some point. Um, so can you confirm if you were a spook? And do you think that air of mystery adds to your appeal? And can you kill a man with a paperclip? Weirdly, Boris Johnson leaked this story to the Telegraph when I was running against him in the leadership campaign. And the whole front page of the Telegraph was devoted to this idea. And he somehow seemed to think, or his team thought, that it would be a real blow to me to say that I'd somehow uh, been a spy and that I hadn't admitted to it. Um, But of course, there was a sense in which some people quite enjoyed that. But there's a deeper problem, which is I don't think people are very interested, really, in what people have achieved or not achieved in their past life. One of the things that was very striking leadership campaign is nobody really talked about our track record as ministers or tried to look at how well we ran things. If they had, I don't think Boris would have done so well. I think this whole question of your past life is almost irrelevant. It seems to come down much more in modern politics to personality. Rory, do you miss the world of Westminster politics and what does it need to um, improve upon? I, I don't miss politics because I found it was deeply, deeply damaging for my mind, my soul, my body. I think it's a really bad for you. It's bad for you in a million ways. It's bad for you because you're slightly famous and being slightly famous isn't good for you. It's bad for you because you're being hammered on social media. But it's just bad for you because you are forced into a position of endlessly proclaiming your loyalty, defending the party line. Even somebody like me who doesn't really want to do that uh, has to do much more of it than I'd like. And that's not good for your character. So what do I think the answer is? I think the answer is that we need, as a culture, as a society, to have a stronger agreement about what type of behavior we want in politics. You know, why do we think telling the truth matters? Why do we think uh, sticking to our word matters? Why do we think standing up for our principles matters? Because unless we get there, and that's the final bit, unless we reward that through voting for people who do that, we're going to end up in a very, very strange world in which you'll end up with politicians who fundamentally don't take responsibility. And that's the most dangerous thing you can have in politics. Rory, you ran for mayor of London in the aborted 2020 campaign and then decided not to run in 2021. Was that purely because you just wanted to get out of politics? Essentially, I couldn't keep running for mayor of London because the election was delayed by 12 months. And I'm running as an independent against these big political parties. They've got very, very deep pockets. They've got big machines. I'd had to build up a machine over five months. I'd had to raise nearly two million pounds. I'd had to recruit all these staff, get these offices, print all this literature, go campaigning. And it was all timed for the beginning of May. By putting another 12 months in, it would be like you were training for a marathon. And then when you got to the finish line or you were approaching the finish line, somebody suddenly told you the race was going to be twice the length. Everything that you've done, all your training goes wrong. And I simply couldn't sustain it financially in terms of my staff, most of whom were volunteers. 
to keep going. And I learned a big lesson from that of why it's so difficult as an independent to take on these political parties. It's a real shame, though, because you had a great logo. My friend Rory had it on his Facebook page, Rory for London. It looked really good. Do you, would, do you, do you think you'd, would, would you ever entertain giving that another try? I'd, I think it would be the most incredible privilege in life being mayor of London. I think it's an extraordinary city. I think it's one of the most practical, responsible jobs in politics. That's one of the reasons why local politics is often much more exciting than national politics, because you're directly responsible for policing, for transport, for, for building, for the things that really matter to people in their daily lives. But I don't know that you can do it without a political party. And unless British politics changes dramatically, I think it's going to be very difficult for me to try to run simply as an independent again. Also, the downside is you might end up prime minister like the last guy did. Yeah, I, do. I think that's even more unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> Now, never mind Brexit. What about vaccine nationalism? Prosperous countries are buying up doses of the COVID-19 vaccine in vast quantities. Will it leave poorer nations unprotected and make the, the fight against coronavirus around the world paradoxically harder? Anna Marriott, health policy officer for Oxfam in Britain and internationally, says we need to reconsider our approach to this. So in terms of the global cooperation, we've seen a number of initiatives set up. We have COVAX, which is a global purchasing scheme. We also have this technology pool that's been set up by the World Health Organization. But these initiatives are struggling, largely because we're seeing rich countries purchasing the vast majority of available vaccines. So on current projections, nine out of 10 people in some of the world's poorest countries are set to miss out on a COVID vaccine next year. So all rich countries, if we look at the US, the European Union, the UK, have all purchased doses far beyond their need. Canada is probably the worst culprit with enough to vaccinate their entire populations nearly five times over. And the UK has enough to vaccinate the entire population here three times over. You know, it's fantastic news here in, in the UK that we've seen the, the vaccine being rolled out. We can feel ourselves the first-hand consequences, the health consequences, as well as the economic consequences. But those consequences are happening all over the world. We are seeing poverty rising for the first time in 20 years in developing countries. We're seeing hunger rising. Impacts are also going to be felt by rich country governments as well. So it's actually in our economic self-interest to ensure equitable access across the world. But it's also in our public health interest. You know, it really is true that no one is safe until everyone is safe. So it's really important now that the UK government really puts those words that we heard Boris Johnson um, state on, on the international stage about the vaccine being a global public good. We need to see those words translate into real action. A really concrete first step would be for the UK government to support proposals being made by over 100 countries to waive the intellectual property rights of pharmaceutical corporations for COVID technologies, including vaccines. South Africa's calling what's happening now vaccine apartheid. So we need to listen to the voices and for the UK government to change its course and stop standing on the side of pharmaceutical corporations and protecting their monopoly control over these vaccines, and instead standing on the side of global public health. 
Oxfam is part of a People's Vaccine Alliance, and we're calling for a vaccine effectively that's owned by the people. It's not the private property of pharmaceutical corporations. And that it's a vaccine that's available free of charge and distributed fairly according to need and not of ability to pay. And what we're calling for is for pharmaceutical corporations to step up and share their vaccine science and know-how so that we can fix that supply problem. This is critical. If we look at Pfizer's to start with, um, 96% of their supply to the end of 2021 has already been purchased by rich countries. The entire supply of Moderna's has been bought by rich countries. AstraZeneca is different. It has actually ensured that 64% of its supply is going to be available for developing countries. Now, that's really good news, but it can only serve around 18% of the global population, which is why we're saying that all corporations need to put public health first before profits so that more manufacturers can get on board and scale up that production as quickly as possible. Arthur, people around the world are already suspicious enough uh, that vaccines are some kind of Western plot, particularly in countries with a heavily Islamist influence on their politics. Is buying up all the vaccines going to make that worse? I don't think it's going to affect that specific problem, but clearly there's there's just a question of access and, and with that comes a question of equity. And I think there's a wider point here, which is that, you know, the COVID crisis occurred during a time when, thanks to a lack of global leadership, particularly in the case of Donald Trump, but, you know, not helped by China either, uh, we've it's just been impossible for there to be a kind of joined up global response. And that that's how we could have uh, really made a difference on on the sort of equitable distribution of vaccines. Rory, you spent a lot of time in, in, in those areas too, those holdouts against the polio vaccine in particular. Do you think that uh, we're kind of missing an opportunity with the, with the, uh, the coronavirus vaccine here that we, it could have been a very good opportunity to say to the entire world, we can operate as one community and we're going to not necessarily share this stuff or make sure it's equitably distributed? I think you've got to get a balance because the, the, the tragic truth is that these vaccines are very limited in supply. And whenever you've got a situation where you simply don't have enough of something, so you know, people over 80 in Scotland, for example, are not likely to be vaccinated until the spring. It's going to be very difficult to say that, uh, to, to convince people that what you're going to do is hand those vaccines over to other countries. I think what a responsible country like Britain needs to do is get the balance between its obligation towards its own citizens and providing generous financial support through our overseas aid budget to make sure that other countries can buy those vaccines. But we're probably never going to be able to achieve the pure idealistic distribution that people would like. Aisha, do you think this is likely to get any kind of focus with our our governments, particularly in, in the West, so keen to demonstrate that they've solved COVID within their own borders? I think it does um, make things difficult. I think one of the things that's been really interesting and a very depressing consequence of recent trends in geopolitics is less cooperation and more, um, you know, going it alone. I mean, obviously, you know, that was all expedited by uh, Donald Trump's um, America First. But even within the the EU, you know, everybody has sort of done things slightly differently, although it does seem to be that we're all having a, a pretty terrible time of it now, and um, particularly going back into to lockdowns. But I, I think one of the things that is depressing is the lack of international cooperation. And the thing as well, which is hard, is now that we have sent a very strong signal to the world that our emphasis on soft 
uh, global power is on the back foot because of the abolition of the um, of DFID and because of our cutting back on international aid, I think that does send a big signal to other countries that look, we're not going to help. We, we weren't going to help you. We're not going to help you with other things now. We're definitely not going to help you with this. Everyone's sort of on their own, and I think that is really troubling because this isn't a virus which respects borders, and it's very very difficult, you know, just to just to sort of contain it within one country. Finally, the future of television and or broadcasting, because they're not the same thing. Streaming services such as Netflix and Disney Plus could be encouraged to provide traditional broadcasting services like news and weather, according to a proposal last week from the communications regulator Ofcom. Meanwhile, the BBC's own public service remit is likely to be radically overhauled. The existing system, says Ofcom, is unlikely to survive. Sensible changes are the latest move in the government's campaign to silence the Bolshevik Broadcasting Collective. Aisha, how would you feel about getting your weather and news from Netflix? Would that work? Watching binging on weather from a week ago. This is great. Last, (laughs) I've reached that stage in my life. I'm really interested in the weather, and I would I'd happily get the weather from anyone if it was accurate. I have about 18 different apps on my phone, which are weather apps, and none of them are ever accurate. So I don't really care who does the weather as long as they get it right. Um, But I do think that um, this argument about the BBC is becoming just like another one of these so frustrating black and white cartoon culture war things. Um, the BBC is incredibly important for a whole number of reasons. And if it were to go or be seriously diminished, we would miss it greatly. You know, I think the BBC knows it's in broadly the right place when each side of politics whinges that it's not partial. I mean, it sort of knows it's in the right place. It's not perfect, the BBC. There's loads of things that I think it does need to think about doing. But I feel like we we're just it feels like it's almost become become like the new brexit i just feel people are so polarized about it um and it is so important to who we are it is a trusted narrator particularly when it when big big news things happen when there's a big moment you know we do also turn to the bbc but that doesn't mean that it couldn't be improved upon there's lots of things that are not right with the bbc but i do i really worry about the debate around it rory how much soft power does britain obtain from the bbc around the world i mean it, it's a it's a dependable piñata for the conservative party to whack as hard as it likes but it is and remains kind of the voice of the country around the world doesn't it it does and the world service is an extraordinary asset which we've been running down very sadly over 15 or 20 years now very very sad and it's a daft thing to do because at exactly the time at which we've been running it down, the French, the Russians, the Chinese have all been investing more and more in their overseas broadcasting because they understand how important it is. BBC World Service still in many countries is the voice that people trust most. It's relatively inexpensive in terms of our overall budget. And it's the smartest possible thing that we could be doing because I think it's a really good way of sharing our values, but above all, uh, communicating truth, which is a central part of anything that we want to do in the world. Arthur, I mean, broadcasting is going to have to change at some point. It's going to have to tackle this question of the fact that linear television is, you know, simply not part of young people in particular, in part, part of their repertoire. Is it inevitable that we're going to have to see you know, the, the abandonment of the old sort of centralised BBC thing and, and the acceptance that everyone is kind of sort of is, is going to view by choice. And maybe they simply will not choose to view the news at all. It was always a, a minority pursuit anyway, only for weirdos like us. Well, I, you know, I, my understanding is, is that people now 
you know, increasingly get their news from a very wide range of sources, a lot from social media and so on. But it is clearly the case that people aren't getting good news. I, I, I mean, you know, reliable news and, and, and the, the degree to which disinformation is, is spreading and the lack of reliable sources is clearly a major problem and contributes to the increasing uh, sort of rancorousness of politics in this country and in, and in almost all over the world. So uh, clearly these are changes. Uh, you, you can't hold back these amazing technological changes, but there must be better ways to try to steer them and regulate them. And also, if I can just come in, I mean, I think there must be more that we can do in terms of Britain and making sure that um, the BBC properly accesses these things. I mean, it's crazy that sitting here in the States, I cannot play BBC iPlayer, but I can get Netflix and Amazon and all that kind of stuff. And I think if the BBC is really to compete in this world, it needs to be as good at providing its stuff globally as Amazon and Netflix. Yeah, I mean, you would imagine that you know, simply buying the license or whatever uh, evolution of the license you want would enable you to play your stuff anywhere in the world, wouldn't you? It's not the technological issue. You would imagine that'd be the kind of thing that the government would encourage rather than simply ignore. It is mystifying. It's very weird. And it's it's very strange. And it's a sign that there is something wrong. I mean, I'm a huge admirer of the BBC. I think they're an incredible organisation. But occasionally they can sadly be slightly bureaucratic and unimaginative. And this is a really good example. What they should have been doing over the last 10 years is really getting into this world and dominating it because they're producing fantastic programs that people would like to play around the world. But it's insane that half the stuff I can't get. We've come to the end of the podcast, which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes from politics, the books, films, TV, music, or anything which gives them sweet respite. Aisha, what about you? What's your def- what's your diversion of choice this week? I've been watching I Hate Susie with uh, Billy Piper. It's so good. It's sort of astonishingly good. She puts in this absolute tour de force of a performance. It's it's slightly based on her own uh, career tra- trajectory, but it's like a it's a kind of. I mean, some people have compared it to things like I Will May Destroy You and Flea Bag, but I think actually it's in a, it's in a different league. It's um, also written by Lucy Preble, who um, um, helped write Succession. It is unbelievably good quite an uncomfortable watch I don't think I've ever seen something centered around a female drama which is that visceral but it is amazing so as we're all locked indoors and indoors as the entire country goes into tier five there's at least something we can uh, we can watch and cheer ourselves up by seeing an amazing <laughs> searing terrible ordeal of a television program <laughs> yeah it does make you quite glad to be inside actually uh, oh right okay Arthur how about you what have you been reading watching listening to well, a, a slightly different sort of uh, area of, of entertainment, but it's actually Bellingcat have produced a report. Now, Bellingcat, for those who are not familiar, is the sort of people's intelligence service. They do amazing work researching uh, the things that, that, are, that, are, that are going on in the world. And they've done a fantastic report about the poisoning of Alexei Navalny, uh, which basically identifies the actors in Russia that currently are sort of operating in the world of chemical warfare. It's fascinating reading it. You feel like you've just been sort of, you've crept into a top secret MI6 briefing and I, I can recommend it to anyone. Doesn't sound like much of an escape route from the horrors of the world, Arthur, but I'll give you that one. Rory Stewart, how about you? What are you listening to, watching, reading? Um, so for me at the moment, I'm on an NBC series called Blacklist, which is uh, one of the great things about it is if you like it, there are something like seven seasons with about 25 episodes in every season. So you can keep going for a very long time. Um, but 
uh, and I'm, I'm, it's completely mesmerizing. You've got this central character who's a criminal mastermind, who is not a very sort of ripped classic Hollywood lead. He's rather a kind of dumpy, slightly balding guy who manages to, through sheer charisma, the actor through sheer charisma manages to make himself into this incredibly sort of compelling uh, figure. So uh, I would recommend if anyone hasn't looked at it, Blacklist. The first couple of episodes are a bit cliche, but it then really grips you. It's James Spader, isn't it, Rory? It's, it uh, is. the- James Spader. Extraordinary, extraordinary, because he, you know, we're used to um, the people that go around uh, behaving like ninjas, looking like, um, I don't know, Tom Cruise. <laughs> but he manages to, uh, this kind of middle-aged guy manages to make himself look so dynamic, so elegant, uh, so decisive. I mean, he's a real sort of, um, it's, it's very cheering for those of us that may be worried that we're entering middle age. Well, in the week that John le Carre uh, le- left us, it's probably a good idea to have something that shows that spies don't have to look like Tom Cruise. In fact, almost always don't. <laughs> Mine is just a quick one. Mine's from Walter Presents uh, Channel 4's on-demand thing. It's a French series called The Announcer, which is set in French television in the 1960s. And it is, if you can imagine, a francophone madman with a largely female cast involving political corruption, sex, violence, amazing suits, fabulous cocktails, and everybody smoking all the time. And the colours, the pulsating colours. It's incredible. The Announcer and Walter Presents Treat Yourself. It's almost the kind of yin to Aisha's yang of... Uh, I I hate sushi. Uh, I hate sushi. I, I, hate, I hate, hate sushi. sushi. <laughs> you can balance your meds on that one. And that's the end of this week's bunker. Thank you to our special guest, Rory Stewart. Thank you for joining us from the United States. Great pleasure. Thank you. And to our panelists, Arthur Snell. Thank you. And Aisha Hazarika. Always a pleasure. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. The Christmas Live Zoom is on Thursday. Are you sure we'll have our antlers on? So back <laughs> the Bunker on Patreon to see it. Just say our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Backers of the podcast, of course, get an honorary salute on the show. And here are some now. Thanks and best wishes from me to Leo Critchley, Rahid, only Rahid, and Jocelyn Gedez-Wright. I hope I've pronounced that right, Jocelyn. And a big thanks from me to Chris Elston, Rachel Woodward, and Michael Sykes. And finally, hello and best wishes from me to Carla van der Zweep, Thomas Glanville, and Tom Byrne. We'll see you all next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Aisha Hazarika and Arthur Snell. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.